Beginning of a new year, at least according to the Julian calendar. But it's it's New Year. I think New Year's are good in a few a month or so. I think we have the Chinese New Year coming up, and uh, different people celebrate the beginning of the year in different ways. I always think of birthdays as kind of the beginning of a new year. But it's January first, two thousand and thirteen. Oh my gosh! The Mayans really were counting down until the release of The Hobbit, not to the end of the world. And um, because we're all still here. <laughs> so greetings, a special hello to all my friends who may be listening here in Southern California or through the Internet. Those most beloved from my favorite Middle Earth message board, the OneRing.com, or affectionately known as Tork. And if you're listening in, hello, greetings, my Govanin, dear friends. And so today for the show, I thought we would have, uh, sometimes for the New Year, I like to talk a little bit about intentions. And I've begun <clears throat> something new. It's a good time. I know a lot of times people make New Year's resolutions. I like to set intentions instead. I don't know. Maybe it's just a... <clears throat> excuse me, linguistic exercise, but I like the idea of setting an intention. That way I don't, um, it, it becomes an ongoing thing that I intend to do and intend to work on. And I'm going to share some things with you today, especially a few little readings from a delightful little book I got a couple of years ago, actually, by Diane Martin called The Book of Intentions. And we're going to have some music and some readings in case you are tuning in for the very first time. This is the show where we celebrate all things Middle Earth and J.R.R. Tolkien by asking the question, what would Arwen do? And I ask that often in life. What would an elf do in this situation? And Arwen was, has been a mentor to me for over a decade now, as with her grandmother Galadriel and her more uh, distant relative, Lucien, but I think that there is a lot we can learn from the elves. Um, Tolkien always, there's a, a wonderful little quote in 
Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, A Guide to Middle-Earth by Colin Duryez. He wrote in his invented mythology of Middle-Earth, Tolkien intended that his elves were an extended metaphor of a key aspect of human nature. This, quote, elven quality in human life was a central preoccupation of Tolkien's. Elves, like dwarves, hobbits, and the like, partially represent human beings. In Tolkien's mythology, elves represent what is high and noble in humans. In particular, they represent the arts in their highest form, work done in the image of God and his created world. And you may be aware that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian, as was his dear friend C.S. Lewis, and J.R. Tolkien was quite instrumental in C.S. Lewis coming to embrace the Christian faith. And there's some things that I wanted to read today, especially um, because I think that both J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were a different kind of Christian, as am I. Um, and I think there are many of us out there that don't want to be f- uh, cramped into that little bitty evangelical box. We feel a great responsibility for caring for our planet, of allowing others to have their own paths, of not insisting that ours is the only way. And um, <clears throat> and yet we are, I think there's something in us that makes us all want to strive for the truth because illusion and lies. Nobody likes to live in lies. If you've ever been around someone who lied a lot, you are aware of how disconcerting that is because you never know what's really going on. And um, so I think with that, we have this quest for the truth and also this longing to know why in the world we are here and what are we here for. And uh, so I'm going to share a few readings with you today. And of course, The Hobbit's been out now for a while, I guess about two weeks. And um, I have only seen it three times. And I believe I'm going to try to make it tonight after the show again, because I'm working mostly evenings this week. Um, I haven't seen it in 2D yet, so I want to go see it in 2D. I've seen it on IMAX in 3D, I've seen it in regular 3D, and I've seen it at um, 48 frames per second in 3D, and that was amazing, the, just the detail. Um, so, yeah, and I'm loving everything to do with The Hobbit and the joy that it brings to those of us who love the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I know some people contend that J.R. Tolkien would not have liked the movies, but I'm not sure. uh, Perhaps at the time, but if he lived now, I think a lot of things would be very different. We'd probably have a lot more of his work directly from his hands rather than from his son Christopher, who I feel a great debt of love and gratitude for, because were it not for his devotion and a labor of love on his father's work, we would not have... The Silmarillion, or the, um, I think it's now 13 volumes or something of the History of Middle-Earth, and a couple of other books that have come out recently. But there's something, a quote that I like to share with you often, just to remind you about J.R.R. Tolkien's intention for the work that he did. He says, and this is from a letter in uh, 19... um, 
1951, late 1951, to, Wal- to Milton Waldman. And he says, Do not laugh, but once upon a time, my crest has long since fallen, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogonic to the level of romantic fairy story. I would draw some of the great tales in fullness and leave many only placed in the scheme and sketched. The cycles should be linked to a majestic whole and yet leave scope for other minds and hands wielding paint and music and drama. And uh, that is from the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, edited by Humphrey Carpenter, a wonderful, wonderful glimpse into the soul and heart of this man, J.R.R. Tolkien, if you ever get a chance to read it. (coughs) And we will be hearing from J.R.R. Tolkien himself and also from his book, um, from his essay on fairy stories, which was a defense of fantasy for adults and fairy stories for adults. First, though, I thought I would share with you a little bit from the Book of Intention. And again, this is by Diane Martin. And I'm going to start with the chapter on spiritual understanding. And perhaps you too may want to set some intentions. This morning I went to a Bikram yoga class. I uh, you probably, if you've listened to the show, know that I love yoga. I've been doing yoga and teaching yoga for a long time. I haven't been teaching for a couple of years, took a little break. But I believe the elves were doing yoga even before it was called yoga. It is a wonderful science for strengthening the mind, the body and the mind, calming the mind, um, just uh, enhancing circulation, strengthening the immune system and the organs of the body. I love yoga. And I, last summer, I was uh, with Ro, the archerist of Escondido, helping with the archery camp, and I'm now certified to help teach archery, and I go down and help her quite often. And now the weather is lovely. It's cool, sometimes even cold, but in the summer, for that week, it was 100 degrees. (laughs) It was one of the hottest weeks of the summer, out in that heat for four hours straight with 32 uh, crazy kids that were having so much fun. And I set an intention that this year I was going to become acclimated to deal with the heat more. And uh, I have been started taking Bikram yoga. And with my friend Patrice Simon, who uh, is the owner and founder of the studio, Bikram Yoga Studio. What did I do with her card? In uh, Costa Mesa. And... Patrice is actually going to be on the show in a couple of weeks because she's also the developer, along with Amy McConnell, of Smiling Monkey Yoga, which is yoga for kids, and classes are taught across the street here at the Center for Living Peace. So right now, Bikram Yoga has a 30-day challenge. I had my second um, class today, and I just go into the class, and my main intention is to stay in the room for 90 minutes without passing out or whatever um, to get myself acclimated to the heat and doing uh, learning the postures. So today was my second day. I'm going to try to go each day as I don't know if I'll be able to do this full 30-day challenge, but uh, my intention is to go as many days as possible and um, get a better grip on my health and support my immune system. So I want to read from you, and if you're interested, you can also you can Google the Bikram Yoga Studio, I think it's Bikram Yoga Newport Mesa, 
and they have classes every day, seven days a week, and very often they have specials. So you might want to check that out. And uh, stay tuned here at KCI with me, Tony Tenuvio, on What Would Arwen Do to find out when uh, Patrice will be in, probably within the next month or so, to talk a little bit more about uh, Smiling Monkey Yoga and the benefits of yoga. So this from the Book of Intentions for this brand new year, the first day of this brand new year here in uh, America. And this is on spiritual understanding. Diane writes, Today I embark on a conscious spiritual journey. I acknowledge first my ultimate spiritual goals, knowing that in doing so I will be more likely to keep my thought focused, my intentions anchored, my vision clear. I begin now. And uh, there are different chapters, and I'm going to read a little bit from uh, a couple of chapters. I'm just going to read the intentions. If you're driving, please don't close your eyes. If you're not, if you're home somewhere, you might just close your eyes and allow these to settle in. Maybe touch some strings in your heart and resonate with you. She says, I intend to have a clear, unfailing understanding of my own self-worth. I intend to redeem rather than condemn myself to evaluate and correct my perceptions rather than place judgment on the ideas or actions of others. I intend to respect and honor God's unconditional love for everyone, to understand that love is the essence of God. That was from the Spiritual Understanding chapter, this from Step by Step. I intend to approach life with humor, passion, and purpose, to take time to garden, to cook, to dance, to picnic, to learn and to play, to share these personal pleasures with my loved ones from all parts of my life, to take extraordinary pleasure in ordinary moments of fun. I intend to make decisions consciously with wisdom and grace, to move forward, discovering and manifesting my life in a fresh, spontaneous and true light to expect the natural providence of serendipitous discoveries and events, to embrace each new day and give thanks for its wealth of possibilities. I intend to acknowledge all the good in my life and to gratefully understand and accept its richness and abundance, to thank God for such loving attention. And from the chapter on creative purpose, I intend that, to imagine that we are God's artistic expression, to consider that we are intended to express creativity, to see how our expressions of creativity enrich the life of the whole and reflect the whole of life. I intend to contemplate the reason that all cultures have felt impelled to sing, to dance, to draw, to express themselves creatively, to regard spiritual, and cultural roots as beautifully unique personal settings from which a story begins, and to recognize that each of us tells a story in the way that we live our lives. And we're going to be talking a little more about story today. Of course, we love the stories of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion. If you'll be staying on for the second hour, normally the Blue and Gold Report would be here at 5 o'clock, but I'm going to be playing a recording, and I believe it's read by Martin Short, of the Ainu Lindeli J.R.R. Tolkien's creation story that can be found at the beginning of the Silmarillion. 
But for now, I thought I would play a little song, and then we'll get back to um, sharing a little bit more. In fact, I think I will play for you the song from The Misty Mountains Cold. See if I can uh, get this up here correctly. And uh, then we'll be back with some words from J.R.R. Tolkien. This is KUCI in Irvine. Mountains Two dungeons deep And caverns old The pines were roaring On the Mountains Cold from the uh, Hobbit, the original soundtrack, which is available for all of us now to enjoy. I've yet to get my copy of it, but I still have a few things on my Christmas list. <laughs> and um, yes, that was the dwarves. I believe that was Thorin Oakenshield. And yep, the Hobbit's still in the theaters. So I hope you will find your way to enjoy a grand adventure. Next, I'm going to read for you from The Monsters and the Critics and Other Essays by J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a, a wonderful book. I think sometimes people forget what an amazing man J.R.R. Tolkien was and how much he enriched the world, not only with this, the two books that we most know him for, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but also through other writings and through just who he was on the planet. He was a great friend to many people and a great encouragement and inspiration. And one of uh, my favorite pieces of literature on the planet is his essay uh, called On Fairy Stories. And you can get that in uh, The Tolkien Reader and also in this book, The Monsters and the Critics, and other essays by J.R.R. Tolkien. And um, I think I'm going to read mainly the back, the end, where it talks about, because we have just, uh, we're still kind of in the Christmas season, and J.R.R. Tolkien, as I mentioned, was a Christian, and perhaps this is a year where you begin something of a spiritual adventure of your own, to discover what is it I believe? Is it important that I know I, what I believe? What difference does it make what I believe in the larger scheme of things? But I think there's always that something in our hearts that's longing for meaning in life and longing to know what in the world is it all about? And um, this essay that um, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote on fairy stories uh, I'm going to begin, actually, he, well, he starts off by saying, I propose to speak about fairy stories, though I'm aware that this is a rash adventure. Fairy is a perilous land, 
and in it are pitfalls for the unwary, and dungeons for the overbold. And overbold I may be accounted, for though I have been a lover of fairy stories since I learned to read, and have at times thought about them, I have not studied them professionally. I have been hardly more than a wandering explorer or trespasser in the land, full of wonder, but not of information. The realm of fairy story is wide and deep and high and filled with many things. All manner of beasts and birds are found there, shoreless seas and stars uncounted, beauty that is an enchantment and an ever-present peril, both joy and sorrow, as sharp as swords. And we certainly see that in his works of The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion. But I'm going to skip now to the end, where he talks a little bit about uh, his faith and about the connection between fairy stories and the Gospels. He says, But the consolation of fairy tales has another aspect than the imaginative sat satisfaction of ancient desires. Far more important is the consolation of the happy ending. Almost I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its higher function. But the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses this opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not as essentially, quote, escapist, nor, quote, fugitive. In its fairy tale, or other world, setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of die-catastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal, final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the, quote, turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to, or indeed accompanied by, tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art, and having a peculiar quality. He goes on in the epilogue to say, This, quote, joy, which I have selected as, as the mark of the true fairy story, or romance, or as the seal upon it, merits more consideration. Probably every writer making a secondary world, a fantasy, every sub-creator wishes in some measure to be a real maker, or hopes that he is drawing on reality. Hopes that the peculiar quality of this secondary world, if not all the details, are derived from reality, or are flowing into it. 
if he indeed in achieves a quality that can fairly be described by the dictionary definition, quote, inner consistency of reality, it is difficult to conceive how this can be if the work does not in some way partake of reality. The peculiar quality of the joy in successful fantasy can thus be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. It is not only a consolation for the sorrow of this world, but a satisfaction, and an answer to that question, is it true? The answer to that, this question that I gave at first was, quite rightly, if you have built your little world well, yes, it is true in that world. That is enough for the artist, or the artist part of the artist, but in the catastrophe, we see in a brief vision that the answer may be greater. It may be a far-off gleam or echo of evangelium in the real world. The use of this world gives, gives a hint of my epilogue. It is a serious and dangerous matter. It is presumptuous of me to touch upon such a theme. But if by grace what I say has any respect, any validity, it is of course only one facet of a truth incalculably rich finite only because the capacity of man for whom this was done is finite. <clears throat> I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feel feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt-making creatures, men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history and the primary world and the desire and aspiration of subcreation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits, for the art of it has a supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. It is not difficult <clears throat> to imagine the peculiar excitement and joy that one would feel if any specially beautiful fairy story were found to be primarily true, its narrative to be history, without thereby necessarily losing the mythical or allegorical significance that it had possessed. It is not difficult, for one is not called upon to try and conceive anything of a quality unknown. The joy would have exactly the same quality, if not the same degree, as the joy which the turn in a fairy story gives. Such joy has the very taste of primary truth. Otherwise, its name would not be joy. It looks forward, or backward, the direction in this regard is unimportant, to the great eucatastrophe. The Christian joy, the gloria, is of the same kind. 
but it is preeminently, infinitely, if our capacity were not finite, high and joyous, because this story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. And that from J.R.R. Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, written many, many years ago, I believe um, 1950-something. The date is not readily right here at the beginning as I thought it was. But you can find that in The Monsters and the Critics and other essays by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I thought I would play a little song before we get back. We're going to hear a little bit from one of my favorite authors, John Eldridge, from a book of his called Epic, The Story God is Telling and Your Place in It. And let's hear from, I believe this group, I always mispronounce their name, but it's so beautiful. Uh, I think it's Stella Mara. And we're going to hear Kire. Alison, this is KUCI in Irvine. Beautiful, beautiful song. The first time I heard this, I thought, oh my gosh, it's elves. <laughs> it just sounds like elves singing to me. So I am Tani Tanuviel, the resident KUCI Middle Earth Elf. This is What Would Arwen Do on Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m., followed by the Blue and Gold Report. But today we will be extending our show, and I will be playing for you some readings by uh, someone else, Martin Short, of the Ainu Lindeli, J.R. Tolkien's creation story, so I hope you'll stay with me at 5 and at 6 o'clock. The irrepressible and ever-delightful Heather McCoy will be here with Rachel Ray's Cooking Accident. If you'd like to email me, I would love to hear from you. Askanelf at yahoo.com, A-S-K-A-N-E-L-F at yahoo.com. And just to let you know, next week, uh, Monday begins our brand new quarter of programming for KUCI. So just in case, uh, many of the shows will be in their current time slots, but there will be some new ones coming in, some going out. In case you um, tune in at a regular time and don't find one of your regular shows, please check our website at KUCI.org to see if your show has moved to another time slot. So I wanted to read for you from a wonderful book called Epic, by John Eldridge about 
finding your place in the story. There's um, a wonderful quote that I've always loved by Joseph Campbell, and John Eldridge makes a similar one in the story, but this, jo- this quote from Joseph Campbell says, Life is like arriving late for a movie. Having to figure out what was going on without bothering everybody with a lot of questions, and then being unexpectedly called away before you find out how it ends. <laughs> and uh, this little book by John Eldridge, you can find it in your local bookstore, I'm sure. And kind of opens with this quote from G.K. Chesterton, who I adore. I had always felt life first as a story, and if there is a story, there is a storyteller. And we're going to be reading from the prologue, which begins with a quote from my favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien from The Lord of the Rings. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. And many of us know and love that scene with Sam and Frodo in The Two Towers. Sam's little monologue, and it's about the sort of tale they've fallen into. And that there's something worth fighting for. I always thought Sam um, Sean should have gotten a Oscar nomination for supporting actor for that particular uh, movie and in that role. So John says it's been quite a journey for Frodo and Sam when the little gardener wonders this. This being, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Ever since they left home, they've encountered more wonders and more dangers than they could have possibly imagined. The battle on Weathertop, the flight to the ford, the beauty of Rivendell. The dark mines of Moria, where they lost their beloved Gandalf. Their fellowship has fallen apart. Their friends are now far away on another part of the journey. Into the shadow of Mordor they've come, two little hobbits and their cooking gear, on a journey to save the world. It's at at this point Sam says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Sam could not have asked a better question. He assumes that there is a story. There is something larger going on. He also assumes that they have somehow tumbled into it, been swept up into it. What sort of tale have I fallen into is a question that would help all of us a great deal if we wondered it for ourselves. It might just be the most important question we ever ask. Life, you'll notice, is a story. Life doesn't come to us like a math problem. It comes to us the way that a story does, scene by scene. You wake up. What will happen next? You don't get to know. You have to enter in, take the journey as it comes. The sun might be shining. There might be a tornado outside. Your friends might call and invite you to go sailing. You might lose your job. Life unfolds like a drama, doesn't it? Each day has a beginning and an end. There are all sorts of characters, all sorts of settings. A year goes by like a chapter from a novel. Sometimes it seems like a tragedy, sometimes like a comedy. Most of it feels like a soap opera. Whatever happens, it's a story through and through. All of life is a story, Madeline Lingle reminds us. This is helpful to know. When it comes to figuring out this story you're living, you'll do well to know the rest of the story. You come home one night to find that your car has been totaled. Now all you know is that you loaned it for a couple of hours to a friend or your teenage daughter, and now here it is, all smashed up. Isn't the first thing out of your mouth, what happened? In other words, tell me the story. Somebody has some explaining to do, and that can be done only in hearing the tale they have to tell. Careful now, you might jump to the wrong conclusion. 
Doesn't it make a difference to know that she wasn't speeding, that in fact the other car ran a red light? It changes the way you feel about the whole thing. Thank God she's all right. Truth be told, you need to know the rest of the story if you want to understand just about anything in life. Jokes are like that. There's nothing to them at all if you walk in on the punchline. Then she said, that's not my dog. Everyone else is in stitches. What is so dang funny? I think I missed something. Love affairs, layoffs, the collapse of empires, your child's day at school. None of it makes sense without a story. Story is how we figure things out. Bring two people together and they will soon be telling stories. A child on her grandmother's lap, two men in a fishing boat, strangers stuck another hour in an airport. Simply run into a friend. What do you want to know? How was your weekend? Fine. It's not a good answer. It's just not satisfying. You heard something about a mariachi band, a fifth of tequila, and a cat. And you want to know more about that story. Look at our fixation with the news. Every morning and every evening in every part of the globe, billions of people read a paper or tune into the news. Why? Because we humans have this craving for meaning, for the rest of the story. We need to know what's going on. Our boys are ambushed somewhere in Asia. What's happening over there? A virus is rampaging on the Internet. What do we need to do to protect ourselves? Sometimes, somehow we don't feel as lost if we know what's going on around us. We want to feel oriented to our world. When we turn on the news, we are tuning into a world of stories, not just facts. Stories. Story is the language of the heart. After all, what's the world's favorite way to spend a Friday night? With a story. A book, a favorite show, a movie. Isn't it true? Good grief, there's a video store on every corner now. Well, or a net box, or one of those boxes in every store. They've taken the place of neighborhood churches. It goes far deeper than entertainment, by the way. Stories nourish us. They provide a kind of food that the soul craves. Quote, Stories are equipment for living, says Hollywood screenwriting teacher Robert McKee. He believes that we go to the movies because we hope to find in someone else's story something that will help us understand our own. We go, quote, To live in a fictional reality that illuminates our daily reality, end quote. Stories shed light on our lives. We know that life is a journey, but through Frodo's eyes, we see what the journey will require. We might know that courage is a virtue, but having watched Maximus and Gladiator, or Joe March and Little Women, we find ourselves longing to be courageous. We learn all of our most important lessons through story, and story deepens all of our most important lessons. I'm going to stop here for just a second. One of my favorite lines from the new Hobbit movie is where Galadriel asks Gandalf, Why the halfling? Why the hobbit? And Gandalf says, Because I'm afraid. And he gives me courage. Great line. Going on in John Eldritch's book, Epic, from the prologue, As Daniel Taylor has written, Our stories tell us who we are, why we are here, and what we are to do. They give us our best answers to all of life's big questions, and to most of the small ones as well. End quote. 
This is why if you get to know someone, you need to know their story. If you want to get to know someone, you need to know their story. Their life is a story. It too has a past and a future. It too unfolds in a series of scenes over the course of time. Why is grandfather so silent? Why does he drink too much? Well, let me tell you. There was a terrible battle in World War II in the South Pacific on an island called Okinawa. Tens of thousands of American men died or were wounded there. Some of them were your grandfather's best friends. He was there too and saw things he has never been able to forget. Quote, but in order to make you understand, explained novelist Virginia Woolf, to give you my life, I must tell you a story. I expect all of us, at one time or another, in an attempt to understand our lives or discover what we ought to do, have gone to someone else with our stories. This is not merely the province of psychotherapists and priests, but of any good friend. Tell me what happened. Tell me your story, and I'll try to help you make some sense of it. You seem stuck. Things fall apart. What does it all mean? Should you have chosen a different major after all? Were you meant to take that teaching job? Are you going to find someone to spend your life with? And will he or she remain true? What about the kids? Are they headed in the right direction? Did you miss an opportunity in their lives, some key moment along the way? And if crucial moments are about to happen, will you recognize them? Will you miss your cues? We humans share these lingering questions. Who am I really? Why am I here? Where will I find life? What does God want of me? The answers to these questions seem to come only when we know the rest of the story. As Neo said in The Matrix Reloaded, I just wish I knew what I'm supposed to do. If life is a story, what is the plot? What is your role to play? It, it would be good to know that, wouldn't it? What is all this about? Seeing our lives as star stories is far more than a powerful metaphor, wrote Taylor. It is how experience presents itself to us. We have lost our story, and here's where we run into a problem. For most of us, life feels like a movie we've arrived to 45 minutes late. Something important seems to be going on. Maybe. I mean, good things do happen, sometimes beautiful things. You meet someone, fall in love, you find that work that is yours alone to fulfill. But tragic things happen too. You fall out of love, or perhaps the other person falls out of love with you. Work begins to feel like a punishment. Everything starts to feel like an endless routine. If there is meaning to this life, then why do our days seem so random? What is this drama we've been dropped into the middle of? If there is a God, what sort of story is he telling here? At some point we begin to wonder if Macbeth wasn't right after all. If life is a tale, quote, told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? No wonder we keep losing heart. We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, often a confusing mixture of both, and we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. It's like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives. Fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know they are, but what does it all mean? 
If only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. Chesterton had it right when he said, With every step of our lives we enter into the middle of some story which we are certain to misunderstand. The world has lost its story. How that happened is quite a story as well, one we haven't time for here. But the latest chapter of that story had to do with the modern era and how mankind looked to science to solve the riddle of our lives. As Neil Postman said about the scientific view, quote, In the end, science does not provide the answers most of us require. Its story of our origins and our end is, to say the less, least, unsatisfactory. To the question, how did it all begin, science answers, probably by an accident. To the answer, how will it all end, science answers, probably by an accident. And to many people, the accidental life is not worth living. That quote from Science and the Story That We Need. John Eldridge goes on, Since then, we've pretty much given up on trying to find any larger story in which to live. We've settled for uncertainty. We can't really know. Listen to the way people offer their thoughts or opinions on just about anything these days. They always start or finish a sentence with a qualifying comment like, but that's just the way I see it. That's not merely a show of humility. It's a sign of our shared belief that nothing certain can be known. All we have now are our opinions. The lost sense, po poet David White observed, that we play out our lives as part of a greater story. It was one of those great stories that you can't put down at night. The hero knew what he had to do and he wasn't afraid to fight. The villain goes to jail and the hero goes free. I wish it were that simple for me. That from Phil Collins and David Crosby, Hero. What sort of tale have we fallen into? There is a larger story. Walk into any mall, museum, amusement park, university, or hospital, and you will typically meet at once a very large map with the famous red star and the encouraging words, You are here. These maps are offered to visitors as ways to orient themselves to their situation, get some perspective on things. This is the big picture. This is where you are in that picture. Hopefully you know where to go. You have your bearings. Oh, that we had something like this for our lives. Quote, this is the story in which you have found yourself. This is how it got started. Here is where it went wrong. Here is what will happen next. Now this, this is the role you've been given. If you want to fulfill your destiny, this is what you must do. These are your cues, and here is how things are going to turn out in the end. We can. We can discover the story. Maybe not with perfect clarity, but maybe not, and maybe not in the detail that you would like, but in greater clarity than most of us now have, and that would be worth the price of admission. I mean, to have some clarity would be gold right now, wouldn't it? Start with the movies you love. I'm serious. Think about your favorite movies. Notice that every good story has the same ingredients. Love, adventure, danger, heroism, romance, sacrifice, the battle of good and evil, unlikely heroes, insurmountable odds, and a little fellowship that in hope, beyond hope, pulls through in the end. Am I right? Think about your favorite movies. Sense and Sensibility, Don Juan de Marco, Titanic, The Sound of Music, Sleepless in Seattle, Gone with the Wind, Braveheart, Gladiator, Rocky, Top Gun, Apollo 13, The Matrix, The Lord of the Rings. The films you love are telling you something very important, something essential about your heart. 
Most of us haven't stopped to ask ourselves, now why that heart? Why those longings and desires? Might we have been given our longings for love and adventure, for romance and sacrifice as a kind of clue, a treasure map to the meaning of life itself? Next, I want you to notice that all the great stories pretty much follow the same storyline. Things were good once, then something awful happened, and now a great battle must be fought or a journey taken. At just the right moment, which feels like the last possible moment, a hero comes and sets things right and life is found again. It's true of every fairy tale, every myth, every western, every epic, just about every story you can think of one way or another. Braveheart, Titanic, the Star Wars series, Gladiator, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they all pretty much follow the same storyline. Have you ever wondered why? Every story, great and small, seems the essential structure because every story we tell borrows its power from a larger story, a story woven into the fabric of our being. What pioneer psychologist Carl Jung tried to explain as archetype, or what his more recent popularizer Joseph Campbell called myth, all of these stories borrow from the story, from reality. We hear echoes of it through our lives, some written secret written on our hearts, a great battle to fight and someone to fight for us, an adventure, something that requires everything we have, something to be shared with those we love and need. There is a story that we just can't seem to escape. There is a story written on the human heart. As Ecclesiastes has it, he has planted eternity in the human heart. Look, wouldn't it make sense that if we ever did find the secret to our lives, the secret to the universe, it would come first to us as a story? Story is the very nature of reality, like the missing parts of a novel. It would explain these pages we are holding, the chapters of our lives. Second, it would speak to our heart's deepest desires. If nature takes, makes nothing in vain, then why the human heart? Why those universal longings and desires? The secret simply couldn't be true unless it contained the best parts of the stories that you love. Yet it would also need to go deeper and higher than any of them alone. Christianity claims to do that for us. Not the Christianity of proper church attendance and good manners. Not the Christianity of holier-than-thou self-righteousness and dogmatism. Not another religion, thank God. That is not Christianity. Oh, I know it's what most people, including the majority of Christians, think Christianity is all about. They are wrong. There is more, a lot more. And that more is what most of us have been longing for most of our lives. A story, an epic, something hidden in the ancient past, something dangerous now unfolding, something waiting in the future for us to discover, some crucial role for us to play. Christianity in its true form tells us that, that there is an author and that he is good. The essence of all that is good and beautiful and true, for he is the source of all these things. It tells us he has set our hearts longings within us, for he has made us to live in an epic. It warns that the truth is always in danger of being twisted and corrupted and stolen from us because there is a villain in the story who hates our hearts and wants to destroy us. It calls us up into a story that is truer and deeper than any other and assures us that there we will find the meaning of our lives. What if? What if all the great stories that have ever moved you brought you joy or tears? What if they are telling you something about the true story into which you were born, the epic into which you have been cast? 
we won't begin to understand our lives or what this so-called gospel is that Christianity speaks of until we understand the story in which we have found ourselves. For when you were born, you were born into an epic that has already been underway for quite some time. It is a story of beauty and intimacy and adventure, a story of danger and loss and heroism and betrayal. It is a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It is a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It is a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos, in a great struggle where, where it is often hard to be sure who belongs to which side, because appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion and wildness, it is a world where the battle goes ultimately to the good, who live happily ever after, and where in the long run everybody, good and evil alike, becomes known by his true name. That is the fairy tale of the gospel, with, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true, that it not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since, and is happening still. That is a quote from Frederick Buchner from Telling the Truth. And then John Eldritch's book, Epic, goes on into chapter one about eternal love. If you are struggling and wondering what this story is about and where your place is in, in it, and perhaps you have leanings toward a Christian tradition in your life, or maybe you're just curious, you might want to find this little book or maybe go visit a church. There are lots of wonderful churches nearby that are very welcoming to people regardless of where they are on their journey. I know Mariners is a church like that. Um, the Congregational Church in Corona Del Mar is lovely and very welcoming, especially to people that have deep questions about faith and what people believe and what's right, you know, what, whether it's true or whether it's just because somebody said it and church history and all those things. They love to wrestle with those things. I want to thank you very much for being with me here today and sharing this time. If you stay with me for the next hour, we are going to be hearing um, a recording of, I believe it's uh, read by Martin Short from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. And it's from the audio box set, Complete and Unabridged, the beautiful creation story. When I first uh, discovered Lord of the Rings and J.R. Tolkien in March of 2002, and I went and I got a hold of the Silmarillion and I began to read the creation story, I was so thrilled because it was as though this was like the musical version of Genesis. <laughs> And so I hope you'll stay with me. This is KUCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM. And I'm going to end the show today with uh, The Hobbit, The Misty Mountains Cold, an electric harp duet from Camille and Kennerly. And you can find this on YouTube. And we'll be right back in just a few moments. This is KUCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle Earth. You can contact me at Ask an Elf at yahoo.com, askanelf at yahoo.com, and you can listen through iTunes or through our website at kuci.org.